Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. What on earth are they going to be talking about in this one? Well, there's a trip back to the dawn of football, 94-95, when a small town from Lanx defied the Manx and gave wow thanks. The games, the goals, the... Oh, my God! Plus, news and another lockdown knockdown in the intertotally as Jack Lang... ...takes on James Horncastle... ...in the quarterfinals. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Fat Larry and his band there with his plans for the day, which sounds nice. Welcome to the show, listener. Alongside me here, you know, in your ears, we've got Matt Davis-Adams. Hello, James. Also Michael Cox. Hi, James. And of course, Daniel Story. Hi, James. Daniel, you've had a haircut. How did you manage that? Uh, yeah, by myself. Uh, wow. My girlfriend refused to do it, really. So, But yes. what apparatus think- did you use? Uh, I bought some clippers online and some scissors and pretended to be a barber for half an hour. Brilliant. We're all discovering all these antique skills, no? (laughs) Or not. Or not. Or not. Uh, Well, enjoy the lockdown while it lasts, Daniel, because you you never know when it could all be over and football could be returning. Premier League, having discussed things on Friday, say they're going to discuss things again next Friday and then quite possibly the Friday after that. In Germany, meanwhile, Raphael Honigstein midweek was telling us about plans to get the Bundesliga back underway late May. The government has reserved their judgment on that. They're coming back with a verdict on Wednesday. In the meantime, interestingly, Cologne have announced that they are testing their players, as indeed all the German clubs are, and they've revealed three positives, two players and a physio. But they say... Because they've caught it early and they're following protocol, this won't affect them, which is interesting, Daniel, because I think this was seen as the major sticking point. If somebody was to test positive, would that basically derail the entire Bundesliga returning scenario? According to Cologne, it won't. Well, yeah, but I mean, if, it, if they're the first of many, then it will. I can see why it helps them to say there's no problem, there's no problem. But if that happens across the board, i.e. particularly the day before matches, then there's going to be serious pressure on them not to play. Elsewhere in Italy, most regions are now allowing clubs to resume training. Lombardy, the hardest-hit zone, still haven't decided. And three championships are ready to get going again at the end of May with government approval. That's Portugal, Poland and Denmark. How's your Polish football, Matt? Uh, I did do the extra classer uh, for a little while, but it's been, right. um, been some time. OK, South Korea, I think, is also very much on the kind of back in the starting gate for a restart. Great. Get my uh, Ulsan Hyundai and Suwon Blue Wings uh, notes out from, from yesteryear. Brilliant. Loads of people tweeting in about previous shows, listener. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe you are Red Five, who Daniel got in touch with us when we were discussing a Sheffield United's unfortunate end to the 93-94 campaign. Uh, tell mm. us the twist to this. Yeah, so very briefly, they needed a point on the final day and were winning with 15 minutes to go against Chelsea and conspired to lose 3-2. And apparently at 2-all, 
they were told by the bench that they still they needed to win the game, not draw, and therefore piled forward in search of a late goal and were kind of caught on the break for 3-2 and then realised that they didn't need to win the game. Crikey. Uh, Dr Chowdhury, prolific tweetings, Dr Chowdhury, gets in touch and says, uh, the 98-99 show that we did uh, midweek reminded me that I missed a classic 3-3 between United and Barcelona because of a school prize-giving event where I watched others receive awards. What's the most famous or important game that the pod has missed? The more spurious and maddening the reason, the better. Michael, has anything ever stood between you and the football? Uh, I remember missing the... Was it a four-all draw between Arsenal and Tottenham in 2008, nine? It was like Harry Redknapp's first game in charge. And uh, I missed it because of uh, basically a, a work social event that had been arranged by two Arsenal fans uh, who'd forgotten about this game. And then they went off to watch the game together while everyone else was forced to be in this restaurant. Um, I haven't forgotten that, clearly. No. <laughs> Um, I remember uh, attending Natalie Truscott's birthday party back in, I think it was <laughs> 91, um, at the insistence of my parents, despite the fact that she and I weren't particularly close at primary school. Everyone in the class got an invite, so uh, I was told not to let the side down and get there. And what did I miss that day? Nottingham Forest 7, Chelsea 0. What about you, Daniel? Uh, I remember being very bitter about missing the 1991 FA Cup final, which my mum went to. I had had my first season ticket that season, so I thought it was all fine for me to go to every game. But it was, for some reason, deemed unsuitable for me to attend a Wembley final. Uh, and I went the year later for the Zenith Data Systems Cup final, which, although it was a more pleasing result, probably wasn't quite the experience. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So I'm not sure if your mother constitutes a spurious reason, but... I'll move on to other tweets. Ads with the lads continuing to dominate conversation amongst listeners online. Jaxie Collins says it's an absolute disgrace that the Puma Hard Chorus haven't made it onto here. The greatest advert of all time, suggests Jack. Were you familiar with the Puma Hard Chorus? No. Nope. It's a group of hard-looking men singing a love song, but essentially it's about their club. I think we'll move on from that with all due respect, Jack. Andrew Jobling says, I'm surprised no one has mentioned Nike 94. That's the one with giant billboards of footballers on the sides of buildings, which then kick the ball, they animate and kick the ball from one to each other, and then Campos makes a save. Now, do you remember? Nope. Moving on then, Andrew. <laughs> it really is our year. That's another listener. Says, here's my submission. The Dodge Challenger ad that was played in anticipation of England's grudge match with the USA in the 2010 World Cup. Now, this clearly, you know, we're out the particular kind of target audience for this, but it, it, you had the Redcoats lining up, you know, in classic kind of Redcoat formation to put down the insurgent Americans who rather controversially arrive in Dodge Challengers, prompting the Redcoats to turn and run. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, a couple of things we got right. Dodge Challengers and Freedom was the tagline. So uh, so there you go. <laughs> One other topic getting a mention on social media. Max Pennefather says, I echo the sentiments about Schmeichel having a poor season in 99. This is from our Thursday Champions League edition. If there's anything this lockdown enforced continuous watching of Premier League years has taught me, says Max, it's that while Casper lives in his dad's shadow, he's probably the better keeper. Duncan Alexander responding, Casper saved more Premier League penalties at Old Trafford too. Is that right? Is Casper a better keeper than his dad? I would say probably not. I mean, I think that we need to be careful in terms of 
judging Peter Schmeichel by the standards of 1990s goalkeepers rather than the standards of today's goalkeepers. I mean, if you do watch Premier League years, it's clear that the standards of goalkeeping really wasn't great. And, and Schmeichel at the time was considered not just the best in the league, but maybe the best in Europe and also quite innovative in, in what he did. That said, I do agree. I mean, he was... He was liable to make mistakes, Michael, even when he was very, very good. I thought at their respective peaks in the mid-90s, there was a big difference between Schmeichel and David Seaman. David Seaman was someone who didn't make the spectacular saves of Schmeichel, but with, well, with a couple of notable exceptions, didn't make too many mistakes. Schmeichel tended to do incredible things and also absolutely dreadful things. So, yeah, I do get why uh, watching Premier League years might make him seem a bit error-prone. Right. We might be talking about one of those exceptions in David Seaman's uh, copybook later on, of course. In general, watching old football, when we talk about, you know, we're going to probably talk about some of the players today, but the the difference in standard, not just in goalkeeping, but across the board is, is night and day, really. How far back or how recently do you have to come in terms of old football before you think players from that era could compete with the ones now? My cornerstone is always Thierry Henry maybe even only two seasons after he joined Arsenal, probably Bergkamp actually as well, but obviously they're foreign players who are coming from a, a foreign culture of football, which was, to my mind, far above the culture they found. So in terms of English football, I don't know really. It, it's only in recent years that English football coaching is focused on skill and technique rather than kind of passion and power. So probably not that long ago. So, for example, our, our subject today, 94-95, that might as well be... The Stone Age? Uh, I don't know about that. I think players like Alan Shearer could probably cope nowadays. I think he'd probably get more yellow and red cards and have more goals disallowed. But I think he could probably cope pretty well. But I don't think he would have scored 260 Premier League goals if he was playing now. All right. Well, we'll we'll discuss much more about Alan Shearer and the other people who lit up the 94-95 season. But up next, let's get quizzical. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Here we go then, into Totally Cup. So, Alvaro put out Pat, Daniel ended Jules's story. What will happen in our third quarter final? Let's meet the contestants. Up first, a man whose hair may say business at the front and party at the back, but when it comes to quizzes, he is business all the time. He is James Horncastle. James, good to have you back. Uh, great to be here, James. Right. With the Inter anthem there, we, will you be going into the semi-finals? That's the question. You had one of the stronger first-round performances, 8 out of 10, but it took a tiebreaker to get you past Tom Williams. Feels like a long time ago, um, James, but respect from my opponent, I think he did better than both Tom and I in our respective uh, first rounds, no? It's tough competition. He did better and also worse. Let's meet him. And his opponent, he is quite simply the dirtiest player in the game. 90,000. 90,001. It is Jack Slidog Lang. Jack, it's, it's, it's the battle of the tiebreaker heartbreakers. It's the Battle of the Bastards, James. I'm surprised that Horncastle avoided the, the eye there, but I'm, I'm happy to, to be the villain on this one. Another bung paid and rewarded. 
<laughs> Beyond all of that, though, Jack, nine out of ten, you only dropped one point against Emma. No one's done better. Can you do a perfect score today? I wouldn't have thought so, James. I surprised myself with that one. All right. Uh, yeah, I'll give it a go, but I wouldn't, wouldn't be too confident. You might need it. Let's hear about your specialist subjects for this quarterfinal. Jack, what are you going for? Well, I've obeyed the quite clear rules put down by the Quizmaster and picked uh, World Cup 2002. OK. And what about you, James? Well, uh, my house through this week <laughs> involved waiting until the last minute to give uh, Quizmaster Nick Miller the topic and leaving him so desperate that I specified Italy at the 2006 World Cup. So right. more furbizia from me. Just, just to clarify for the listener, that is, that is literally outside the rules. <laughs> Why? What, what was the rules? Well, Jack? the rule was it couldn't be X team at X competition. Right. But James just got that in so late that there was mm. nothing that anyone could do about it. Complete yeah. scum. Wow. Okay. Well, will he pay the price? Will Karma be waiting in this quarterfinal clash? Let's begin then. Italy at the 2006 World Cup. James Horncastle, question one. Italy only conceded two goals in the whole tournament. One was Zidane's penalty in the final. But who scored the other? It's a Zaccardo on goal. It is. Question two. Ten different players scored for Italy at the World Cup. Who were the only two to score more than once, though? Luca Toni against Ukraine and Materazzi. Right. Quick scanning of the Wikipedia page. They're impressive. Question three. <laughs> Which player in Italy's World Cup 1982 squad was on Italy's coaching staff in 2006? Ooh. Part of the 1982 squad. Hmm. I have to hire you. I'm going to go with... Paolo Rossi? No, it was Ivano Bordon. Oh, okay. Question four. Which slightly unlikely friend of Alessandro Del Piero did he celebrate in front of after his goal in the semi-final against Germany? I think that's Noel Gallagher. It is. Question five, then. Only three Italian players started both the final in 2006 and their defeat to South Korea in 2002. Which three were they? Well, I'm going to go with Buffon, uh, Cannavaro and Totti. Two out of three, James. It wasn't Cannavaro, it was Gianluca Zambrotta. Ah, cats. Mm. Three out of five. How'd you feel? Well, blindsided by yeah, a 2002 question and a 1982 question. But aside from that, fine. <laughs> They're both 2006 related, though. So I think that's uh, entirely fair. Uh, Jack Lang, are you ready for your questions on World Cup 2002 and any, anything that Nick Miller feels is related to it? Yeah, hit me. OK, question one. After Ang Yong-wan scored the goal that knocked Italy out, the president of the club he had been playing for in Serie A announced his contract had been cancelled because he ruined Italian football. Which club was it? Uh, Perugia. That's right. Although Ang was, of course, only on loan there and it was just simply a question of the fact that he wasn't renewing his loan deal. There's a great Golazzo episode all about this and the man <laughs> who made the announcement, Luciano Gauci. Go and have a look for that. Question two, though, Jack, for now. Which incident, which dominated the news at the start of the tournament, was partly sparked by an unwatered training pitch? 
uh, Roy Keane's row with Mick McCarthy that saw him uh, leave Republic of Ireland's World Cup squad early. Correct. Question three then. By what scoreline did Germany beat Saudi Arabia in the group stages? 8-0. Correct. Question four. Who missed a penalty for Spain in the shootout against South Korea in the quarterfinals, which saw them get knocked out? I think it was Joaquin. It was. You're one point in the lead now, and this for the perfect score in your specialist subject. Question five. Who was the only England player to be named in the team of the tournament? Nicky Butt. No. Sol Campbell. Sol Campbell. So at the end of that, Jack, you have a one-point lead over James Horncastle ahead of the general knowledge. Very tasty. I'll say. We'll see you back there for that at the end of the show. See ya. See you later. Just one point between them then, and you can bet Horncastle will be using all the dark arts when we return with the, the general knowledge. Yeah, I've got the fewest points and given the worst performance of everybody in this quiz so far, but I don't think I'm emerging with the least amount of credit from it in terms of conduct. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right then, we'll be back with James and Jack later on. Next up though, we're going back, way back, with the latest in our series of Premier League seasons. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Tall Swedish strikers with little ponytails, special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegambleware.org. Listener, we're not going out and you're not going out. So why not brighten up this time at home by getting some in with a crate of craft beer from our pals at Beer 52. Now, typically, Beer 52 put eight beers in their cases, but because you listen to the Totally Football Show, they're going to chuck in another two bottles. So that's ten beers for free. All you pay is £4.95 for shipping. Beer 52 are beer pioneers working with small batch breweries from all over the world to bring you hoppy IPAs, hazy pale ales and silky stouts from such places as the Czech Republic, New Zealand, Korea and even here in the UK and Ireland. There's no minimum commitment with Beer 52. You can take this free case, try the beers and if you decide it's not for you, you can pause or cancel your subscription at any time. It's entirely up to you. So head to beer52.com football and claim your free case of craft beer right now that's the word beer and then the number 52.com slash football one last time beer52.com slash football on spotify smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere this is the totally football show from muddy knees media 1994. The Channel Tunnel opened, Ayrton Senna left us, there was Pulp Fiction, Shawshank and Speed at the cinema, and OJ was on the run. I think I just saw OJ Simpson on the uh, 5 freeway. He's heading north. In the Premier League, a new season was getting underway. A season of Kung Fu. Oh, what's going on here? Catanar's getting involved. This is supporters. Of Bung Fu. Well, 
I don't want to comment anymore on that. Of Klinsman at the Lane, Aussie's 505 and Kevin Keegan's Polo Neck Addiction. For the first time, four teams would be going down at the end of this season and for the first time, Man United wouldn't finish it, Premier League champions. For this, Michael, this is the Blackburn Rovers season. Yeah, I, I think this was really exciting at both top and bottom. As you say, it was the first time we'd had a really proper title race. The fact that there was this slightly strange situation where the, the league was getting reduced meant that there was a proper relegation fight. I mean, on one hand, it meant that Leicester and Ipswich got relegated incredibly early, I think end of March or something ridiculous. But it also meant that even mid-table sides were kind of looking over their shoulder and thinking, wow, there's four teams going down, we're going to have to you know, really compete this season. So, yeah, it was... Um, just a really memorable Premier League campaign, I think. Alex Clooney says, surely Blackburn and their equivalent spending was as much buying the league as Man City in the 2010s. Is Alex very, very wrong? He's not a million miles away from the truth, I don't think, because you know most of the key players in that Blackburn team were, were purchased for what at the time were considerable amounts of money, but it's reflected on in a different way, uh, in part because it was over long 25 years ago, but also because uh, there's a difference in the public perception of a, a local businessman uh, you know, from the northwest doing his best to help his hometown club as there is to you know, an oil state with questionable human rights practices buying a football club um, to enable them to promote their own image. But there are certainly similarities there, I think it's fair to say. They broke the British transfer record to sign Chris Sutton. The only other player they played, in inverted commas, proper money for was Jeff Kenner from Southampton. And Manchester United did spend £7 million on Andy Cole in the January of that year. So it wasn't as if they were blowing their title rivals out of the water in terms of spending, I don't think. You know, they did spend what at the time was was considerable money on players in positions like Tim Flowers for two and a half million pounds was a lot for a goalkeeper at the time. You know, David Batty was a was a high profile pickup and Shearer, when they bought him from Southampton, that I think it was three point three million, was it? That was a lot of money for that for that kind of time. And there's similarities with Manchester City there because they don't break the world transfer record every year. You know, they, they spend 40, 50 million pounds on players as opposed to 80, 100. So there, there are some similarities. Another world. Well, it's remarkable how much else was also going on in that campaign. Everton, for example. Joe Royal was reviving their fortunes. Duncan Ferguson was arriving. And they were winning their first silverware in eight seasons. The FA Cup with a 1-0 victory over Man United. Thanks to a Paul Rideout goal and brilliant goalkeeping of Neville Southall. The win was predicted in January of that year by Mystic Meg and is to this date Everton's last major trophy. Across town... Liverpool were witnessing the breakthrough season of Anfield legend Robbie Fowler. 25 league goals, only Shearer scored more, including what was for a very long time the fastest hat-trick in Premier League history, four minutes and 33 seconds against Arsenal at Anfield. Of course, Sadio Mane's now beaten that. And finishing one place ahead of Liverpool that season, who, Matt? Nottingham Forest, yeah, the um, two-time European champions roaring back into the Premier League with um, with an exceptional season and, and only a mere 13 points from winning the title. It was a very odd season as well in that Frank Clark was, well, he was, he was appointed to replace Brian Clough, which was uh, a kind of hospital pass for anyone and did sensationally with it. But he kind of fell away pretty quickly after that. I know he managed Manchester City, but he never really hit those heights again. And it was an odd season because in the middle of it, Forrest took 21 points from 20 matches, 20 league games, and somehow still finished third. I think they won one and 10 and drew two of the last 12. 
but you look at the team and it was, you know, it's an obvious thing to say for Matt and I, but it was such peak Forest of our lifetimes. Um, you know, Pierce, Roy, Collymore, Bohinan, Wong, Harlan, Cooper, Stone, most of whom got international caps um, around that time. And it's an odd season, I think, because Blackburn were brilliant. Manchester United were not as good as they should have been. Liverpool were nowhere near as good as they should have been, to my mind. And everyone else was kind of a much of a muchness. And Forest were able to rise above that muchness. And there's a, a nice kind of encapsulation of, of the calamity that is supporting Nottingham Forest if, you, if you're around the age of me and Daniel in that Forest set the record for the biggest ever Premier League away winning this season, winning 7-1 at Sheffield Wednesday, only to lose that record four years later by themselves being beaten 8-1 at home by Manchester United. So that's kind of your lot as a Forest supporter. In London in 94-95, Jon Jensen scored his one and only goal for Arsenal. But that was about as good as it got for the Gunners. Paul Merson admitting his addiction to drink, to gambling, cocaine, basically you name it. Manager George Graham fired and banned over an illegal payment of almost half a million pounds for the transfers of Jensen and Paul Leiderson. And Arsenal's European dreams then ending one of the 90s more celebrated bits of football bands when Real Saragossa made a splash and Naim lobbed Seaman from 40 yards. Naim! What of Spurs has taken the Cup Winners' Cup surely from Arsenal. Gunners finished 12th. Meanwhile at Spurs, Ozzy Ardiles' 5-0-5 formation wasn't the only thing that had everyone flabbergasted because Jurgen Klinsmann had turned up. What a shock was this? Yeah, I'd say that was a a real game-changing moment. Probably the first time the Premier League had welcomed a genuine superstar to the league. I was watching uh, the VHS of this season, which I found in my uh, archives, let's say, uh, this morning. And it's incredible how good Klinsman is. I mean, he just looks looks on a different planet to every other... uh, Certainly the defenders he's playing against, but even compared to Andy Cole and Ian Wright, just his movement's so good. He's so quick going in behind the defence. Yeah, I mean, it was just really exciting that Klinsman was here. His whole story in English football was kind of dominated by the allegations that he was a bit of a diver and was very good at winning penalties. And he certainly showed that on a few occasions throughout the campaign. But his finishing was just sensationally good. The arrival of Klinsman, looking back on it, as obviously have been preparing for this, it feels like a kind of PR triple header from from Klinsman himself, from Spurs and from the Premier League. So you go into the start of this season with Spurs having been deducted six points and kicked out of the FA Cup for financial irregularities, which is, is later overturned. Um, Klinsman, as Michael says, the reputation of being a diver and the, and the Premier League wanting to show that they can attract these big name uh, foreign players. And it kind of worked in everybody's favour. Um, Klinsman, I seem to remember, was front and centre of every post-match interview. You know, the famous goal that he scored at Hillsborough on opening day or the more famous celebration that came after it. People forget that he was knocked unconscious later in that game, but they still wheeled him out to do the post-match interviews, um, looking particularly groggy. And I can't remember a Spurs game where he didn't do a post-match interview in that time. And that felt to me like a, a kind of campaign from Spurs to say, yes, we've had these uh, problems which have caused us you know, to be cast in a bad light. But hey, look, we've got Jurgen Klinsmann. And, and Klinsmann kind of saying, yeah, but it's all banter. I don't really dive. And, and the Premier League, as I say, saying we can attract these big names. This is the place to come. He is a great talker, Jurgen, but certainly a lot better than his, his, his management record has, has proved. And there's a great piece right now by 
by Nick Miller on hey, the totallyfootballshow.com where he's talked to Jurgen about the move, how he ended up at Spurs. And uh, Klinsmann kind of reveals that he was fed up with his manager in France, who was a certain Arsene Wenger at Monaco, <laughs> and that Spurs were actually after Chris Sutton but couldn't quite afford him. So they, they went with him instead. We also have to remember just how much of a game changer he was in terms of foreign players for the future because he arrived not just with a diving reputation but also with a, a, a media, maybe particularly a tabloid media, that was still pretty mistrusting of foreigners. I looked and at the end of this season, the 22 managers and 22 captains of Premier League clubs, the only one who was born outside England, Scotland and Wales was Joe Kinnear who was born in Dublin and moved to England at the age of seven. Like, this was still such an insular league. So the knock-on effect of Klinsman coming, I don't think without him we get Ruud Hullet and then we get Dennis Bergkamp and, and the knock-on effect of his signing is, is absolutely monstrous. Only there for one season, but an absolutely huge arrival there. Michael, in the meantime, uh, Ozzy Ardiles' formation, if such it was, of four at the back and then Popescu, Dimitrescu, Anderton, Bambi, Sheringham and Klinsman up front that was popularly seen as 505. How does this fit in among the league's great tactical innovations? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, yeah, 505 is a slight exaggeration. Uh, the Arctic Monkeys formation, I think you can call that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, the player I really liked in that system was Popescu, who, who really was a centre-back, but just stormed forward to join attacks and scored some really big goals. And on the strength of this season, he went to Barcelona for a couple of seasons afterwards. I remember watching him and just thinking I hadn't really ever seen a centre-back play like that. And of course, that was because of the licence that he was given in this uh, Spurs system. And I think there's a, a funny thing there as well that, you know, they got Popescu and Dumitrescu. And I think when you saw this early wave of foreign players in the Premier League, often you'd have two nationalities at one team, often because basically because the the manager or the uh, the board got in with an agent. So often whenever you'd see like, uh, for example, Man City signed Georgie Kinkladze and then you get a guy called Kavalash Vili who came along and like the second one was never quite as good as the first one, but it was always really exciting when they came. I think it's, it's a bit like buying kittens, isn't it? You, you want to bring somebody for them to play with and that's a, a philosophy that's certainly existed in, in other countries as well. If you buy, you buy Dennis Bergkamp, get a Wim Yonk while you're at it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Well, let's talk then about Kenny Dalglish's Blackburn Rovers. What's the frequency can at the shop and so train? Uh-huh. Yep, for the first time in the Premier League era, we had a real title race to the wire, courtesy of Rovers and Manchester United, the team that had won the first two Premier League campaigns. Michael, in your book, The Mixer, you note the similarities between Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalglish. The fact they both Liverpool, they both won promotion a season after taking charge of their clubs. The fact that both enjoyed or endured late slumps in their title campaigns. The difference being that Kenny's Rovers didn't have perhaps that United chasing them or was it the fact that Sir Kenny didn't do a TV rant or was it the fact that Sir Kenny had Ray Harford as his second, not Terry McDermott. Yeah, Harford was was someone I really tried to give, uh, I, I think, overdue credit to in the book. I mean, everyone knows his name, but maybe not the extent to which really he was. He was just in charge of the side. He took all the training sessions. He was really, really liked by the players, particularly in terms of his work in, in terms of build-up play. I mean, Blackburn were a pretty simple side. They had two of the best strikers in the league. They had two flying wingers in Wilcox and Stuart Ripley, who basically just went down the outside and crossed the ball. But 
there was some kind of nuance and some intelligence to the way that they they played football. So um, yeah, Harford I think was a, a huge factor in uh, in Blackburn just creating a lot of chances. I think that's what you see from their games. They sometimes conceded too many goals, but you were always fairly sure that Shearer or Sutton would come up with the goods. And there's so many goals where it's literally just the two of them. One of them has the shot and the other one rebounds or one of them knocks it down and the other one finishes. I'm not sure there's been any duo that have contributed such a high proportion of the goals and assists for, for a title winning side. Um, yeah, you, you alluded to something there, James, which I think was was significant as well. I mean, in terms of the team, the spine of that Blackburn team was really great. You know, they had Flowers, Hendry, Sherwood and Shearer kind of through the middle of it, which was pretty exceptional for the time. But but you mentioned about Kenny Dalglish not not ranting, James. And I think that that was the thing um, that, that Alex Ferguson certainly came up against and couldn't find a solution to. You know, if you look at the way in later years, Keegan would be affected by what Ferguson said, but also Arsene Wenger and Rafael Benitez. And, and Dalglish really didn't seem to rise to that in the slightest. And I don't know, pop psychology, but but you kind of feel that it irked Ferguson even more, given that, you know, Dalglish was Celtic, he was Rangers, one's Liverpool, one's Manchester United, historically, um, etc. But but I think that was a factor, because even as Blackburn almost collapsed toward the end of the season, all, all the interviews with Dalglish towards the, towards the end of that campaign, not only is he saying the right thing in terms of, well, we're still leading the table, we have a, a couple of points gap, he's not getting angry at interviewers asking him questions, he's not showing any signs of stress or fatigue, particularly. He's just reflecting this aura of calm, which is something that, that Ferguson sort of very rarely faced in his in his opposition managers to, to that extent. And, and I think that did play a part, if maybe only a small part. Been a remarkable journey that he'd had with Blackburn, a side who he'd picked up in the bottom half of the old second division, won promotion to the Premier League at the first attempt, and then figured in the running, or at least in the top, the higher echelons of the Premier League in the first couple of seasons before this campaign. Yeah, I think this season for, for Dalglish and Blackburn was kind of a perfect storm in that Manchester United weren't as good as, as their brilliant best in 93-94, which we discussed recently. But they also had very few distractions. They went out the first round of the FA Cup, they went out the first round of the UEFA Cup to Trelleborg, which is remarkable for a, a Premier League champions-elect, as they were. They went out in the fourth round of the League Cup, and I think Seven, basically seven of their players started 38 or more of the 42 games. They were Flowers, Hendry, Berg, Lasso, so most of the back five, Sherwood, Sutton and Shearer. Shearer obviously had his injury problems later on, but just keeping him fit for a whole season was almost the cheat card. We've spent a lot of time on Shearer already, but it's worth, particularly maybe for, for younger listeners, his stats are ridiculous. Bear in mind he had those two serious knee injuries. He got 260 Premier League goals, which is 52 more than Wayne Rooney, who's second in that list. And Rooney played more than 50 games more than Shearer did. So it's really, really astonishing record that he put together. You know, I talked about the insularity of the Premier League earlier and very much the reciprocal was true because... I thought it was really funny and I went to look. In 1995, after Shearer had scored all those goals, 34 in a title-winning campaign, he got one vote for the Ballon d'Or. And George Weir, who won it that year, and I know, uh, I think Michael is rightly aggrieved by that, but he got 144 votes. So it wasn't just that the Premier League was insular, it was that foreign football didn't really view the Premier League as a high enough quality league to matter, which, when you watch how good Shearer was, is a nonsense, really. Right, although results like their early exit in the yeah. UEFA Cup to Trelleborg, the part-time team from Sweden who didn't even bring their own shorts to the fixture, probably didn't <laughs> help the Premier League's case much. True, very true. 
that move by Andy Cole was fortuitously timed, given that it came just before Cantona went out of the picture. How much did that impact on Newcastle? Yeah, it hit them really hard. And I think, um, you know, it took them until the summer to get Les Ferdinand in. But I think the thing about that transfer was it was just so shocking. It, it just happened overnight. It was unbelievable news when it dropped. It wasn't like a modern transfer now where everything seems to take place over weeks or months and all this speculation. It was just like click of the fingers, it was done. Six million plus Keith Gillespie, who'd scored a couple of weeks earlier, I think, for, for Manchester United against Newcastle, maybe convinced them to to go for him. But I've I've never been so surprised by a transfer in, in my life. It was incredible. I think Newcastle fans felt the same way. And then you had Keegan standing on the steps at St James's Park in that turtleneck with the sleeves rolled up, which is very much his look. I thought we could take it on. And you've got, you know, you've got to allow me to do that. If it doesn't work, you know, I know what the implications are. And fair play to Keegan for doing that. There's there's actually a piece um, that's been written this weekend by Seb Stafford-Bloor on Football 365 about how that should have been Keegan's defining moment in in terms of the way that he could interact with people successfully and and showing a, a kind of side of his personality which most managers don't have so he just wanted to try and explain what happened I think obviously managers don't have anywhere near as much say in transfers these days as they did then so you're less likely to get it today I wonder if one of the Newcastle supporters there was the chap who'd had Andy Cole tattooed onto his leg uh, finished off the day before the transfer to Manchester United uh, went through it wasn't a small tattoo either took up his whole thigh Andy Cole in Newcastle kit Uh, The chap then had it reworked over the summer to make it look like Les Ferdinand, (laughs) which is iffy. Um, I think it would be polite to say. But even with Andy Cole, they missed Eric. How big a role in Man United not catching the challenger this time was played by events at Selhurst Park in January of that season. Oh, what's going on here? Catanar's getting involved with some supporters. Oh, this is outrageous. It's all got wildly out of hand, and once more, Eric Cantona is the man at the centre of a dramatic controversy. I think it was the, the defining moment in the title race. Cantona being suspended for his Kung Fu kick for the final four months of the season. He still ended it as Manchester United's second top scorer behind Andre Kinchelskis, and that lack of a regular goal score really hurt them. There were three 0 0 draws. I think Tottenham, Leeds, and Chelsea all at Old Trafford, um, which. Clearly, it might have turned out differently, but if they'd have won any of those looking back, they'd have won the title. Uh, and they just didn't quite have enough to get it over the line. There were teams still really in transition in that the young players, the Class 92, were coming through. But you know, Brian McClare started 35 league games that season. So it, there was still some of the old school. And Cantona was just the, the gel that brought it all together. And without him, yeah, they just looked a little bit uh, clunky, I guess. Cole came in and also scored 12 goals. So they got 24 between them. But... If they'd have both played, I think they win the title. Yeah, j- just on the Cantona thing, uh, if I could uh, approach this from a, a slightly self-indulgent perspective, um, I was on holiday visiting family in New Zealand at this point for, I think, three or four weeks. And uh, at this point, before the internet and in a country that didn't seem particularly interested in football, I genuinely couldn't get any football news all month. I just went three or four weeks without finding out any results whatsoever. And then one day top story on the news at 10 in New Zealand was Cantona attacks fan um, and I just felt like you know obviously from my own personal situation I just felt that was the first time like the Premier League became a really like global story and I think in wow 
in that being the story, it kind of introduced everyone to, okay, someone who'd done something that was disgraceful, etc. But also, by far the most interesting character in the Premier League, someone who completely bucked the trend of what, you know, English footballs were meant to be like. And I kind of think it was the making of the Premier League. I mean, just from a personal perspective, I just remember thinking, wow, the people care about the Premier League outside England. This is incredible. It's so famous now, that moment, that it's almost become just divorced of the of the significance of what happened that day of professional footballer running up and taking a flying kick at a spectator who had been abusive but was standing on the other side of a barrier. It was a genuinely shocking moment. Yeah, it was also it was also incredibly divisive. You had commenters saying that Cantona should be banned for life and should never play in England again. And then you had players, I remember Andy Townsend's the one that sticks out, who said, good on him. Um, we've put up with this abuse for too long. And if football is going to turn a blind eye to this, it was it was always going to happen at some point. And the reality is, is that as we now know, it was probably always going to be someone like Eric Cantona because he had that temper. But he had put up with abuse at pretty much every away ground he'd gone to. This was at a time when players, you know, walked off the pitch as bizarrely they do again now, having been sent off or substitute, they walked right round in front of the home fans and the abuse they got was pretty vile, really. So yeah, it, it was an incredibly, almost a modern reaction in that there were some what we would now call hot takes on both sides of the equation. Yeah, I think we'd probably all have reacted in the same way if we'd been subject to somebody saying, off you go, it's an early bath for you, Mr Cantona, as was the um, the defence of the person who the kick was aimed at. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe? Special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus begumbleware.org. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Man United lacked Cantona then for the remainder of their campaign, but Rovers' improbable run at the title seemed to be catching up with them as they neared the finish. Doug Leash, seeing his Rovers stumbling, losing three of their last five, and from eight points clear with six games to go, they entered the final day just two points ahead of United. Man United would be taking on West Ham. Blackburn were at King Kenny's old stomping ground, Anfield. United needing a win and Blackburn not to win. And the whole thing was simulcast two matches at the same time, which back in 1995 was genuinely revolutionary. Yeah, there was a piece, big piece about it in the um, in the Sunday Times that day. I seem to remember of of it being, uh, you know, the most significant moment in in the brief history of the Premier League. It was certainly, I think, would have helped Sky drive subscriptions going forward to the next season because it was, um, you know, them showing that it's it's not just the the cheerleaders and somebody you know dropping from the sky with a parachute on his back to put the match ball on the centre circle. We have the capacity to show two games at once, and and it wasn't just the, the, the simulcast. It was you getting a picture in picture of updates of what was happening in the game that you weren't watching. So you know I was watching Blackburn Anfield, and I kept seeing in the bottom left corner of my screen Ludo McCloskey making saves and stuff, and it really did feel revolutionary in a almost pre-internet era. Absolutely. Tell us about the game at Anfield then, because it starts off pretty well for Blackburn. Jeff Kenner's made a run on this side. Shearer! Yes! Oh, 
yes, that's what they wanted. So Blackburn go in front fairly early on for Alan Shearer and are kind of in command. And then from research I've done before, like the interesting thing is that a lot of the Blackburn players say at half-time, they were just incredibly nervous. I think there was one player, maybe Jason Wilcox, who sat down in the change room at half-time and said, I can barely get my legs to work because I'm so Yeah, nervous. I think it was Stuart Ripley. Oh, Stuit Ripley, OK. The, yeah, the but, winger. I mean, the atmosphere couldn't have been better or more welcoming for them because not only were their own fans cheering them on, but also Liverpool's fans were too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bizarre they managed to to lose this game in the end. I mean, the funny thing, again, watching this VHS was it was the second game in a row that uh, Jamie Redknapp arguably didn't want to win because in the midweek he was away at West Ham and could have potentially relegated his dad's team, which I thought was quite funny. So he must have had a very strange week. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as Matt alludes to, the star of the show was McCloskey, who made three or four really good saves to uh, to keep out United down at Upton Park. Long towards Lee Sharp! with the flick on this time. Oh, a tremendous save as Hughes' header is beaten away by Miklosko. As the game wears on, in fact, pretty much with the last kick of the game, Jamie Redknapp scores the winning goal for Liverpool. David Gillen citing the commentator shouting, Oh, my God! When Redknapp scores versus Blackburn, as his memory of the season, that man Paul Dempsey, of course. But then attention shifts to what was going on down at Upton Park. And and we come back to Cantona again, don't we? You know, in terms of the the amount of chances that United missed in this game, it, it, the obvious thing was to say, well, Cantona might well have put one of those away. I mean, they they'd look to address that problem with Andy Cole. Um, he had a couple of shots well saved, I seem to remember. Um, but any any other time, you'd think United would have won that game really, really comfortably. And and we talked about Blackburn players feeling the nerves. Maybe it was a case that United had the same sort of thing. It was really odd that they were so wasteful in front of goal on that day. Yeah, and there was also a thing here with a lot of Man United fans feeling that Ferguson got his tactics wrong. I think he only went one up front here. Uh, Andy Cole played up front. They had Brian McClare as well, but they also had Nicky Butt and Roy Keane and Paul Lintz, which does seem a little bit overkill in defensive midfield for a game that you've got to win. Uh, Mark Hughes was left on the bench, came on at half-time. Paul Scholes, who I must admit I was surprised to see him featuring so heavily this season. I don't really remember that, but he scored a, a few goals for Manchester United. He came on with 10 minutes to go. But yeah, there was a sense that Ferguson had been overcautious. And uh, yeah, maybe that was the reason why they only scored one goal, though that said, they did have lots of chances. And that roar from the Blackburn fans, Dildes, it's all over at Upton Park. And Blackburn, I feel sure they're champions. They are. And as the news comes through from Upton Park, there are wild celebrations, getting Doug Leash and the players, because they, they know that they, Blackburn Rovers, from this tiny town in Lancashire, have gone and become the champions of England. Whatever the questions about the money, it was an extraordinary performance. Alex Cooney writing in saying, has there ever been a, as big a fall from being champions, then bottom of the Champions League group in seventh, and then relegated within four years as that suffered by Blackburn Rovers? It did seem to come apart pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I can't work out as a, as a supporter who has been starved of that, whether I'd rather have a team have one season of brilliance that you remember forever or it being the start of a, a mini dynasty. I think it was always likely with the way English football was going that, and the kind of influx in foreigners that Blackburn were unlikely to maintain it and, you know, for example, win two or three titles in a row. I think the spending power of other clubs caught up with them and they, they spent really badly in the summer. They obviously lost Kenny Dalglish, so it already felt unsustainable to my mind by September of the next season that they would do anything other than go back into the pack. So 
they will always remember it. Any Blackburn fan that was alive at the time will remember that as the season. And maybe in some ways I'd rather that than have a, a period of finishing second and third and second and missing out on the title again. I, I kind of like that, having that just that perfect storm for a season. Yeah, it was also the the classic case study of how you can be a, a good assistant but not a great manager because Dalglish went upstairs to become the director of football. Ray Harford took over and by all accounts was not so good at controlling the, the dressing room without Dalglish there. And then a few years later, as mentioned in the question, Blackburn end up getting relegated when the manager is Brian Kidd, who at this point obviously had been a, a very trusted assistant to um, Sir Alex Ferguson. So, uh, mm. yeah, they I think they made a, a couple of bad managerial decisions there. Well, back at the start of this chat, Michael mentioned that the other really exciting aspect of this season was the relegation battle. Of course, the Premiership was slimming down from 22 to 20 teams, which meant an extra club would be going down. And it all came down to the final day again. The big losers being Crystal Palace, the team who finished fourth last with Ian Dowie leading the line for them, but still went down. Equally, Reading, who finished second in Division 1 but lost in the playoff final, didn't come up because only one team was allowed promotion. Leicester went straight back down. Norwich were relegated just two years after they had been part of a title race. And Ipswich also made the drop, giving Swindon a good run for their money, conceding 93 goals on their way, including a 9-0 defeat to United at Old Trafford, which is the Premier League's joint biggest defeat. Of course, Southampton having a similar scoreline this season. Southampton themselves this year stayed up largely thanks to Matt Latiss and Goalscorer Challenge nominates as his great memory of this season the phenomenal strike that Latiss scores against Blackburn. He's going for goal again. Oh! He's only just over halfway and it's a kind of lob but with a bit more power than, than your average lob over his mate Tim Flowers for, former teammate and one of his good pals apparently and, and Letizia being Letizia spoke about his perfectionism last week with those goals against Newcastle um, he said he was trying to hit Flowers' towel which was wrapped up in the net in the goal so that's the kind of accuracy that he was going for and, it, and it's notable for the lack of celebration because they were losing in the game and they lost it anyway um, but it it's one of those if you watch Matt Letizier goals in a big bunch they kind of lose their impact I think but seeing this one on its own you think wow if anybody else had scored that that would be one of the highlights of their career but it's just you know part of his 10 minute highlight compilation that you watch on YouTube and it's one of the better goals in it Wackers Raja does point out that he does make a kind of a celebration gesturing at his former teammate Tim Flowers pick that one out <laughs> Wait, what, why is it do you think I mean we talked about Latisse last week he, he spent his career playing at the bottom end of, of, of the top division. He didn't get the England chances. What is the reason for that? I, I think he was, well, two things. Firstly, he was a, he was a, a luxury player. Uh, and I mean that as a compliment. But in a Southampton team, he, he, you know, very literally, he was just given the ball and allowed to do what he wanted. And what he wanted to do was be absolutely brilliant. So it worked out very well. I'm not sure if that worked out as well or would have worked out as well at England level. But I, I guess, and Michael will know more about this than me, he was a player who, because of his individuality, was quite hard to nail down to a position, which I guess at the time English football was still pretty much, you know, pretty straight minded about where players played. You know, it wasn't just 4-4-2, but there wasn't an awful lot of play in between the lines. Cantona changed that and, and Letizia did as well. But Cantona's another one who didn't get the international caps that his talent deserved. And his was probably temperament as well. But I think there's a similarity there that I think they're both quite hard to define in terms of positions. 
during uh, during watching highlights of this uh, season, I was interested to see uh, young Norwich striker by the name of Jamie Curiton score in the 3-0 win over Chelsea. I found that interesting because, would you believe it, I saw him score in the flesh this season for Bishop Stortford against Kingstonian. <laughs> Last-minute consolation penalty. He's now 44 and still playing in a relatively high, you know, okay, seventh tier, but, you know, semi-professional football. Would you believe, you know, 25 years on from watching him on a very grainy VHS tape, that's quite the achievement. When we talked about the relegation battle, it's worth singling out Norwich for their relegation, I think. They were seventh at the halfway point. They had sold Chris Sutton, but they took 10 points in the second half of the season to go down, which is a pretty remarkable effort from a team that, as we mentioned pretty good in 92-93 and 93-94 so a real fall from grace I wonder if we if we ought to mention something about about the scandals across this season and, and whether they they played any part in in kind of the ramping up of the reputation of, of the Premier League you had Dennis Wise found guilty of uh, of assaulting a a taxi driver initially sent to jail overturned uh, people might remember Dennis Wise's agent Eric Hall uh, who, who claimed to be monster, monster, shocked by the verdict at the time when, when he gave a press conference afterwards. Um, Chris Armstrong, Palace striker, uh, he was charged with possession of cannabis uh, quickly back. You mentioned Merson, who had that horrible press conference, which I found really difficult to watch again, where he's kind of hauled in front of the press by the FA, essentially, at which point they haven't told him if he's going to be allowed to play again just to train, and, and he's kind of breaking down in tears and, and being forced to talk through something publicly which he obviously wasn't ready for. Um, the Bruce Grobelar stuff, which we touched on last week, that resurfaced again, George Graham. But all these kind of narratives that weren't to do with actual football, which has kind of become an essential part of what we think of when we think of the Premier League now, I think. And this was the first season that we really had a big, big cluster of those, even though they're not good news stories, they, they do make news. Wow, what an extraordinary trip through football of yesteryear. And we'll have another one next week. For today's Totally Football Show, there's only one way to wrap things up, and that, of course, is with the eagerly anticipated round two of Horncastle against Lang. Welcome back, James. Welcome back, Jack. Hello. Good to be back, James. Yeah. Well, you've got some work to do. A point behind Jack Lang as we head into the general knowledge. Any thoughts, James Horncastle? I should have paid Nick Miller more. Right. Very Italian answer. Let's go with the general knowledge then. And James, you, of course, are up first. You ready? Yes. Okay. This to put the pressure on Jack Lang. You need a big performance here. Question one. Who was the Nottingham Forest player, the Paul Gascoigne tackle to injure his knee in the 1991 FA Cup final? FA Cup, early 90s English football. Mm. Not my strongest suit, James, I must admit. Mm. I think, though, it was Gary Charles, was it? Oh, my word. You've nailed that one. Question two. Which two English teams have won all three major European trophies? The European Cup or Champions League, the UEFA Cup or Europa League, and the Cup Winners' Cup. Which two English sides have won all three of those? So Champions League, UEFA Cup, Cup Winners' Cup. Juice them? Yeah, in their various forms. Chelsea, and probably going to have to say Manchester United. Yes. Question three. Which member of England's 1990 World Cup squad's career path is this? Ipswich, Rangers, Coventry, Sunderland, 
Clyde Bank? Um, World Cup, England. Trevor Stephen, something like that. Nope, Terry Butcher. Ah, of course. Siri, let you down there. Uh, question four. <laughs> in, November, in November 87. <laughs> in November 1987, Mark Hughes played for Wales against Czechoslovakia and for Bayern Munich against Borussia Mönchengladbach. What was unusual about those two appearances? So he played for Wales against the Czechs. Czechoslovakia. And Bayern uh-huh. Munich against Borussia Mönchengladbach in November 1987. What was unusual about those two appearances? They both happened in Munich? I don't know. Nope. They both happened on the same day. What? Yeah. Question five. Who is the missing name in this sequence? Manuel Pellegrini, Jose Mourinho, Carlo Ancelotti... Mr. X, and then Zinedine Zidane. So, Manuel Pellegrini. Yes. Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho. Then Carlo Ancelotti. Then our missing name. Then Zinedine Zidane. So, it's the guy who replaced Ancelotti at Real Madrid. Oh, um, this is embarrassing. Um, horny, come on, Jesus. Uh... Gonna have to hurry you. Ah, it's what do you call him? It's um, Santiago Solari. Is it? No. What? No. Oh. It's Rafa Benitez. The f- Damn. <laughs> Damn it. So, a score of two out of five on the general knowledge means that you have a grand total of five out of ten so far, James. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really praying now. Um, right. I'm looking to put something on the Jack spaghetti or, you know, sort of fill his water bottles with some kind of uh, sleeping agent. Nice, nice. Jack, of course, one correct answer will take you to a tiebreaker. <laughs> Look out. And two will take you through to the semi-finals. Here are your general knowledge questions. One, George Hargy played for two seasons in Italy, but for which club? Oh, I have no idea. So I'll guess at... Probably a mid to higher part of the table Serie A team, uh, Palmer. Do you want to tell him, James? That's Brescia. Mm-hmm. It is. Question two. Which member of England's 1990 World Cup squad's career path is this? Aston Villa, Chelsea, Leeds, Torino, Derby and Stoke. Can you read them again? Sure. He went Aston Villa, Chelsea... Leeds, Torino, Derby, and Stoke. David Platt. It's Dorigo. Want to tell him, James? Dorigo. Damn. Tony Dorigo. Question three. Three players have played in the winning team in both the World Cup final and the Champions League final in the same year. Who is the most recent, though, to do so? The most recent player to feature in both the World Cup final and the Champions League final in the same year. Okay, I will go for uh, Raphael Varane. Is correct. So you need one of the next two to go through to the semi-final. Question four. Who is the missing name in this sequence? Frank Reichard, Pep Guardiola, Tito Villanova, somebody, and then Luis Enrique. Uh, Tata Martino. Damn. Is correct. 
And with that, Jack, you are through to the semi-finals. Your final question was, who scored the winning goal when Wigan beat Manchester City in the 2013 FA Cup final? Uh, Ben Watson. Is correct. So that gives you a total score at the end of your general knowledge round of 7 out of 10. Wow. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. I'm glad that uh, (laughs) clean play has prevailed. (laughs) (laughs) The richest of ironies there from Jack Lang. Looking forward to seeing you in the semi-final. You'll be up against either Carl Anker or Michael Cox. We'll be finding out which in next Thursday's show. Commiserations, James Horncastle. Well, I only have myself to blame. Um, I'm a little bit disappointed that I leave this competition as Ramsey Bolton. Um, Not the best look. (laughs) So Jack Lang through, like it or not, listener, to the semi-finals. Well, he's going to be taking on the winner of our final quarterfinal, which is going to be you, Michael Cox, against Carl Anker. If you're interested, by the way, in terms of total scores, Jack has uh, compiled 16 points out of a possible 20 so far, which is the best of anybody. So that suggests that whoever gets through to face him in the in the semifinals is going to have a bit of a job on their hands, Michael. He's very, very strong, very knowledgeable, Jack. He's, uh, yeah, I think... He's always been regarded as a dark horse in this competition and uh, it'll be a tough game, whoever whoever gets through. Jack through with 16 points out of 20 so far. Daniel, your two uh, scores so far combined give you only one point fewer than Jack. Is that the correct use? I always get confused. But anyway, 15 points for you. And uh, Alvaro Romeo, the other uh, semi-finalist so far uh, with a whopping 14 out of 20. Excellent. Michael, have you chosen your special subject yet? Uh, I haven't yet. I haven't confirmed it. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll choose something decent. I won't do a Horncastle because we've seen that crime doesn't pay. <laughs> right. Once again, once again, looking forward to hearing how that goes then. And that will be part of Thursday's show when we'll be looking at Champions League terms, the 99-2000 season, the all-Spanish final. Brilliant. Do hope you'll be joining us for that listener thanks in the meantime for being along today and many thanks for michael and matt and daniel for all their expertise and analysis of uh, today's retro topic we'll be back thursday carvey cox in the quiz we'll see you for that from now from all of us here it's goodbye you've been listening to the totally football show a muddy knees media production for sales and advertising please email sales at muddyneesmedia.com Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy News Media.